time for Kids Church, so uh, fifth grade and under, you guys are dismissed. I know Chelsea and Noah are waiting for you, so you guys have a great time. Hey, uh, we have a first-time, not a visitor, but a first-time person here with us today, and so we want to recognize that this is one of probably my favorite thing about new babies. And so, uh, Chase, uh, you want to show us Nora Grace? Do the whole Lion King, Simba? And we are so glad that she's here. And uh, Chelsea told me uh, a few minutes ago, she said, if you do that, Chase is going to hate that. So make sure you do it. (laughs) So, hey, thanks for being here today. Uh, Today we're beginning a brand new series of messages. And uh, it's going to take us through into into Easter. And the the title of this series, because I was real creative with it, was the Gospel of Mark, all right? Because over the next few weeks, we're just going to preach through the, the book of Mark. And I'm going to tell you right away, though, we're not going to read every verse in the Gospel of Mark. So we'll, we'll kind of hit and, hit and miss a few. But, but we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at some of the most important passages, or at least some, of, some important passages, maybe not most important, but some of the important passages in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's different than Matthew and Luke in that it doesn't start with the beginning of the birth of Jesus. If you read Matthew and you read Luke, it begins with the birth of Jesus. And we think, all right, if it's a gospel, like that's where it should start, right? It should start at the beginning with Jesus' birth. But Mark doesn't do that. And I think the primary reason Mark doesn't do that is because of who he's writing to. And this is an important thing just to understand about all uh, books in the Bible, but especially in the New Testament, is that the context of who the audience is. Because let me just tell you, the Bible wasn't written for 21st century Christians. I mean, it, you're, some, somebody's going to hear that and say, hey, Adam said the Bible's not for us. No, that's not what I'm saying. We were not the original audience, I guess is how I want to say that. We were not the original intended audience. But now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things in Scripture that there aren't all of Scripture isn't for us. It's just that we weren't the intended audience originally. And so Matthew, his gospel is primarily written to Jews. And Luke is writing to a conglomerate of different people. But Mark, his primary audience are Christians who are living in the province of Rome. Now, now the church of Rome is primarily consisted of, obviously, Romans, but, but also Greeks. And, and these are Mostly Gentile people. There's not a lot of Jewish people in this church. There are probably some Jews that had fled to Rome for, from, for persecution reasons, and, and they're a part of the church. But there's not a lot of converted Jews to Christianity in the church of Rome. So, so Mark doesn't need to begin his gospel by going through you know, the, the historical genealogy of Jesus. It wouldn't have mattered to his audience like it did to Matthew's audience. He wouldn't have had to go through all of the, the prophecies that, that were um, predicting the birth of Jesus to a virgin. Those things wouldn't have mattered to Mark's audience. And so he begins his gospel with an introduction of John the Baptist. And I think that's interest, interesting because if you know or remember anything about John the Baptist, he didn't have much good to say about Jewish religious leaders or Herod and his family. And, and so, so Mark's audience would have probably been a big fan of John the Baptist. Because guess who they didn't really care for? Jewish religious leaders and Herod and his family. It's kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing, right? And so Mark begins with this, this introduction of who John the Baptist is. And, and he talks about his, his goal into preparing the way for, for Jesus and, and his ministry. And so immediately after that, and that's one of these words that you're going to see, uh, and if nobody points it out to you, you probably don't notice it, but once it's pointed out to you, it's going to drive you nuts because you're going to see words like immediately and, and later on. And so 
those are like buzzwords for Mark. He, he just uses those words all the time. And sometimes it's hard to kind of put together the, the timeline of events because Mark just goes from one event to the next. And it doesn't seem like there's any gap. It's like, wow, all that stuff happened in one day. No, it, it happened over time. But, and so you kind of have to fill in the gaps for yourself. But Mark begins with a, an introduction of John the Baptist. And then we see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with his baptism. And immediately... He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and temptation from Satan. And then we go right into Jesus returns and John the Baptist has been arrested. He's spoken out against Herod one too many times. And, and so Herod says, Herod's uh, uh, family says, hey, we want his head on a platter. And Herod says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. And so they arrest John and they behead him and they bring his head out on a platter. It's, it's pretty gruesome. And so... He's arrested, and it says, Meanwhile, Jesus has returned from the desert, and he comes declaring some good news. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, this is what it says. It says, Later on, that's a, this depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, but this is NLT, so it might say immediately or, or soon after. It says, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Jesus comes back from this, this desert experience where he's, he's fasted for 40 days. He's not had anything to eat or drink for 40 days. Satan's been tempting him. They, they, we, there's this you know, big um, deal where Satan says, hey, you know, if, you, if you really are the son of God, jump off this cliff. You know, do this, do that. And, and every time Jesus rebukes Satan, he says, no, no, no. You know, man shouldn't live on, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Don't put your Lord God to the test. All of those kind of things. Satan is rejected by Jesus. And he comes back and his message is not, look how good I am. I've done all of this. I've defeated Satan. His message is, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's near. Repent and believe the good news. That was the message of Jesus. And everything else in the gospel, everything that's going to follow in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel and John's gospel, they're all just a way of illustrating what that means, that the kingdom of God has come near. It's a way of teaching what life in the kingdom looks like, what it means to live as a servant of that king, who the king is and how we even enter into that kingdom. Even the miracles of Jesus that were performed, they're meant to be examples of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. You know, wholeness and healing and fullness of life. All of this is illustrating the central point of Jesus' preaching. That the kingdom of God has come near. And so today we want to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? If this is the, like the central theme of, of all of Jesus' preaching, as Christians, we ought to understand what the kingdom of God is, right? Like that, that should be one of the things that if somebody says, well, what's this kingdom of God? We should know, right? We should have an answer for that. It, this should be something that we're able to tell people w without really even thinking about it. And so today we want to ask, what is the, question of God, uh, what is the kingdom of God? And so those of you who, uh, who have been Christians for any length of time, you probably have, have some idea what the kingdom of God is. You probably have a pretty good idea, hopefully. But maybe the more you think about it, the more you wonder, is that, is that all there is to the kingdom of God? Or, or maybe is there more? Am I missing something? Am I forgetting something? Am I leaving something out? Maybe there's something more to the kingdom of God. And I'll just tell you that biblical scholars and, and theolog theologians, they've devoted entire lifetimes to focusing on, on this one theme, trying to understand what it looks like. And I think the kingdom of God, this, this idea of a kingdom, is a little harder for us to understand 
in our day and age than it was in Jesus' day. Because we don't have kings or kingdoms in America, do we? In our culture, we, we've got a president, and we've got a democracy, we've got a republic, right? But we don't have kings and kingdoms. In the first century, though, there were lots of kings and kingdoms, and the king was the ultimate authority. There, there were lots of these guys around, and, and there were emperors, and, and Caesar had control over an entire empire. There were, there were various kings within that empire who, who had control over local regions, and, and they reported to the empire. I think had Jesus lived in another part of the Roman Empire, he might have talked about God as the emperor, and he would have talked about the empire of, of, the, of, of God. But instead he talks about the kingdom of God, again, because of who he's talking to. right? He's talking to mostly Jews, right? He's talking to this Jewish audience who, who understands that there's a king. Remember, that's what the Jews wanted more than anything else. Is they want to be like all the other countries and, and nations around them and have a king. And God said, you don't need a king. I'm going to be your king. And they said, no, 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 no. We, we see what they've got and we want that. And God said, okay, if this is what you really want, I'll give it to you. But it's not going to end well for you. And we know that it didn't, right? So they had some good kings and they had some not so good kings. And ultimately they end up with two kings because the kingdom divides. And so, so they understood this idea of king and kingdom. Kings for the people of Israel, it was the highest authority. The, the king ruled completely and sovereignly over everything. He was responsible for everything within the bounds of that kingdom. He was responsible for the safety and the protection of his citizens. He was responsible for the... For, uh, the financial well-being of his senses, if there was a famine in the land or, or one was predicted to come, it was the king's responsibility to have a plan for his people so that they wouldn't all starve to death, right? The, the king was responsible for everything and everyone, but he was also able to claim everyone in the kingdom as his subjects. He, he could ask them to do anything that they wanted to do, and they had to do it. Like, that's the deal, right? You want a king, so you're going to live in a kingdom, so you're going to be his subject. And if you don't do what the king says, guess what? You are living in rebellion. And if you rebel against the king or his kingdom, guess what? There's a penalty for that. And the penalty, more often than not, was death. Everything within the bounds of that king, of that kingdom, belonged to the king, including the people. And so when Jesus is looking for an analogy, a way of talking about who God is and, and what authority God exercises over us, he chooses the highest authority figure in the land, the highest authority known to humans, a king. And here's what he says. He says, God, God is above all of those earthly kings. The book of Revelation, it tells us that, that Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, right? The king of kings. That means he, he's, he, if, if you're looking for a pecking order of kings, he's number one. He's greater than all other kings. He, he's the king, and he rules God's kingdom. And here's the thing that we need to understand about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is expansive. It includes all of creation. It includes all of the cosmos. God, God created this little planet, Earth, and, and people used to think that Earth was the center of the universe, let me rephrase it. Some people thought earth was the center of the universe. Some people think that they're the center of the universe. And let me just tell you, neither one of those is right. Right? We understand that now. That, that, God, is, that God is the center of the universe. We know that earth is, is no longer the, the center of the universe. We're on the third planet from the sun. A star, a star is our sun. And it's not really, when you think about it, all that magnificent. I mean, compar comparatively speaking, I mean, we look at it and it's all we can see, so we think it's great. But look at the, vast, the vastness of the, of the cosmos of space. And you think, you know what, that's one star out of billions. 
right? And God created all of those, and God is, is ruler all of, over all of those. We're just one galaxy among hundreds of millions of galaxies out there, and God rules over all of them, over all the vastness of space. He fills all of it. Think about that for a moment. I mean, that's a hard thing to get your, your mind wrapped around, that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, everywhere on this planet and in all of space. I mean, think about that. I mean, other than a few people, um, nobody has really ever been into outer space, right? There's a few people, some astronauts, right? Elon Musk, uh, a couple of his people, right? They, they've gone. But, but we've never really been able to experience that. Right, like the closest thing we get to is like a plane, flying in an airplane. And yet God's presence is not absent from, from those spaces. We look in the Hubble telescope and, and you see all of this blackness, right? There's just the, this darkness that is there. And yet God's presence isn't absent from it. He reigns over all of it. And yet on this one particular planet, God chooses to create not only life, but human beings. He, he creates people who are able to think and to reason and to love and to hate. He, he created us in his own image with the capacity to, to do great good or to do great harm. He gives us the ability to make choices and, and to choose to follow God or to reject God. Can you imagine what a risk it was for God to, to do that, to create beings that could actually turn their backs on what he intended? I mean, if you're a parent, you probably understand this. You know, I think, I think being a parent is maybe God's uh, way of saying, hey, uh, let me let you create something in your own image that denies your existence and, and wants to, uh, to rebel against everything you say, right? I mean, that's parenthood, right? right? Like, I thought more parents would be on board with that. I guess maybe I'm not as good a dad as I thought. Hey, but anyway, I mean, God took a risk when he created humans with the ability to think for themselves and do for themselves and, and to accept or reject. But here's the thing that we, we have to understand about this is that whether you decide to follow God or reject God doesn't diminish God's rule. It doesn't diminish his reign. You, you can follow God or you can reject God, but God is still king, right? And, and so so we've got to understand that because that's really the story of, of humankind, isn't it? That our, our rebellion is our story is a rebellion against the king, right? All of us have lived at some point in open rebellion against the king. We are all sinners, right? God has, has a set of laws. He has a set of principles that we're to follow. And, and when we don't follow those laws, those principles, we are in open rebellion against the king. Whether you accept God or reject God, you are living in rebellion. And that's the story of, 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 of creation. But the good news is that instead of just killing all of us, which, I mean, he would have the right to do, right? He's the king, right? That's what he could do. Instead of doing that, he redeems us. And that's the hope of the cross, isn't it, right? That's, that's the hope of what we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks that as, we, as we work toward Easter, as we move toward Easter, the hope of the cross, that God didn't just reject us and, and do away with us, but instead God sent his son into human form, taking on flesh just like us, that he was created in the image of God, we were created in that image, and that now he has not only come to live among us, but he's come to redeem us. That's the hope of the cross. That's the hope of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes and he walks among us for 30 years and he's in Nazareth preparing. He, he's a carpenter, right? That's, that's what Jesus does for a living. And then he comes preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. That God reigns and rules over everything. So follow him and live according to him. 
His miracles demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God. He reaches out to people who are lost. He shows us the principles of the kingdom of God. He gives the Beatitudes, which is, which is just in direct contrast of all the values of the world that lives in rebellion against Him. Read, read through the Beatitudes, right? You read through those things and everything seems upside down, doesn't it? Nothing seems like it's, it fits in our world. You know why? Because it doesn't. It wasn't meant to. It was meant for another world. And so, so what, what does humanity do with, with Jesus? Well, we crowned him, didn't we? We crowned him with a, a crown, a crown of thorns, and then we nailed him to a cross. But even that, even that was part of the plan. As we looked at the cross, we could see for the first time the extent of our rebellion. We could see the extent of Christ's love for us. Because in his death and in his resurrection, we realized that our hearts might be changed and we might begin to live as a part of the kingdom. So there are three senses in, in which Jesus uses this term, the kingdom of God. And, and this morning we're going to try and unpack those, those three senses fairly quickly. Um, and, and, and the reason we want to do this is because when you read through the Gospels and you read about the kingdom of God, so, sometimes you might find that it's, it's this idea that Jesus is talking about and not this idea. Or maybe it's this idea and not that idea. And when you plug in the right understanding of what, of what Jesus is talking about when, the, when he's talking about the kingdom of God then all of a sudden that parable makes sense, or the teachings of Jesus make more sense. When, when I was in my early teenage years, I took a trip into the New England area, and, uh, and Bill, I, th- I think Dudley and Georgia May were on this trip with me. They were part of that group that I went on trips with. and We went to, um, to Mount Washington, New Hampshire. All right, and Mount Washington is the highest peak in the Northeast. Um, and so we rode a trolley to the top of the mountain. We went in the middle of the summer, so it's like 85 degrees on the ground. And then you get up to the top of this mountain, and it's like 45 degrees. And nobody told me that. I'm a teenager, and so I'm, you know, and even if they had told me, I probably wouldn't have listened. So I've got gym shorts on, and it's cold up there, right? But they were told, we were told by our tour guide that on a clear day, you could see probably about 150 to 200 miles in any direction. And so it was pretty clear that day, and so he's telling us to turn and look, and so we turn you know, to, the, to the northeast, and we can see into Maine, and we turn to the south, and we can see Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and we look to the west, and we can see Vermont and New York. And, and that was all really cool, to be able to see into all of those different states from, from this one location. But I'll tell you the thing that I couldn't get over the most, was that when you're looking down at, at everything below you, just how small everything looked. Right, like everything just—it it, seems so tiny, and, and we could see some different animals um, that were that were running around in, in kind of the valleys of, of the mountains, and, and and I just thought, man, those those things look so small. I mean, there were there were some moose up there, and if you've ever seen a moose in person, like they're big, um, like they will total out your your pickup truck in a heartbeat. Right, uh, you don't mess with them. Bobby's got some experience with deer and cow lately, and and like that moose would would do a lot more damage. They're big, but, but from the top of this mountain, I mean, they look like, kind of like a puppy dog. I mean, they just look so small. Everything was so smaller. And now when I think back about that, in, in light of the kingdom of God, the, the little creatures that lived in this, you know, their one little patch of land that lived in their one square foot, you know, three or five feet, they never moved away from those spots. And they couldn't see the beauty and the grandeur of all that was around them. They just saw that one spot right there in front of them. They, they just saw the grass that was underneath their feet. And if they were really conscious beings, that would be the extent of their universe. This is the first sense in which God talks about the kingdom of God, that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, that God rules and reigns over everything. 
Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you realize it or not, I used to say one of the towns that we lived in, it was like going to a different country. You needed a passport when you crossed the county line because it was just a different world. And, and everybody lived in that little, that little county and they thought that, that, every, that this was it. Like if you passed the county line, you were just going to fall off the face of the earth, right? And that's kind of the way I think some people think about just their lives. They never see anything past what their present experience is. They never see anything more than what's right there in, in their proximity. That's, that's it. It's just what's right in front of me. Whether you acknowledge it or not, God rules and reigns over everything. He's all around us. God reigns. And, and, and we need to wake up in the mornings and remind ourselves of this. Because we can get so used to living in the world that, that, we, that we live in that we think this is all there is. This is all that happens. You know, I go, I go, to, I, I go to work in the morning. I come home. I do whatever it is, you know, I need to do to get the house cleaned up or fix dinner or whatever. I go to bed and then I repeat that routine the next day, right? And, and we get so caught up in just our routines that we just think this is all there is to life. This is all there is to my experience. But no, there's, there's more than that God's experience God's reign is over all of us it's everywhere whether we acknowledge it or not and here's the other thing we need to realize about this everything is transient right everything is transient everything continues to move the only says one country music uh, artist said the only thing that changes or the only thing that stays the same is that everything changes right that everything changes everything continues to move some of you the the places that you grew up don't look the same that they did when you grew up there do they they change, changes come. Maybe, maybe you grew up on a farm and, and now it's a subdivision. It, it doesn't look the same. Or maybe, maybe the place where you grew up is, you know, you grew up in a subdivision and, and somebody, uh, developers come in and they put in a factory there or something like that. You know, everything changes. Look, we're getting ready to experience a big change in our community. It's going to change. Everything changes. Everything's transient and God is not ignorant of any of those things. And he rules and he reigns over all of it. And all of us in this room, the one thing that we can't escape is that one day we're all going to die. I mean, we're all going to die, right? We're going to be laid in the ground and after a period of time, we're, we're going to return to dust. And a hundred years from now, nobody's going to remember us. If you think this is all there is, that we're on this tiny little outpost in a tiny little part of the Milky Way galaxy in the vastness of, uh, of the cosmos, you've seen the Hubble telescope pictures, right? You think about all this, that this is all there is. That's not how this works. You need to somehow change your perspective and see that God reigns and that you are a part of his kingdom. And the single most important thing that, that I can do is, is to live according to the values and the principles of his kingdom. And when you begin to live according to the values of God's kingdom, you find that life begins to go differently for you. You find that when you're not living according to the rebellious standards of the world, but according to the standards of God's kingdom, life just seems to go differently. God's kingdom is all around us. There's nowhere you can go that God doesn't reign. And you either choose to recognize the truthfulness of that and live accordingly, or you choose to live in that rebellion, rejecting the truth. And if you choose the latter, you'll find that your life doesn't go quite the way that God intended it. We're meant to recognize that the reign of God is all around us and to live accordingly. The knowledge of God's kingdom that is all around us is not meant to lead us, though, to ignore the world and to say, well, you know, none of the world's problems really matter to me because I'm a part of God's kingdom. It's a different kingdom. It's, 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 in, the, it's in heaven. No, no, no. So I don't have to worry about the world. No, 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 no. I live in the kingdom. 
And because I live as a part of God's kingdom, it should compel me to try to help us and help this world look more like the kingdom of God. We, we live in a rebellious world, right? We live in rebellion, and, and the world lives in rebellion. And we see a lot of things that are broken in this world and, and reflections of all of our brokenness. But we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And teaching, that, teaching us that prayer, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God not only as a present reality, but also as a future vision. He, he's talking about, about the kingdom of God if it was fully realized on this earth. That if it was fully realized on this earth, that the world would look differently. Think about this. What would the world look like if all of humanity accepted the kingdom of God? If God's reign was recognized by everyone? Would, would there be so many wars in, in countries on our planet today? I, mean, I don't know if you've been following the news with Russia and Ukraine, but I mean, it looks like there's a war impending there, right? Like, may even be happening as we speak, I don't know. But, but if, if God's reign was recognized by, by everyone, including the president of the Russian Federation, you think we'd be on the verge of a war there? Probably not. There, there's enough food on this planet to feed everyone, but every day 25,000 people die from malnutrition and starvation-related diseases. What would happen if God's reign was recognized everywhere? Do you, do you think we would make more of an effort to combat those problems? What would happen if, if God's reign was recognized everywhere? We have major cities in our country, in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. We have major cities that are still heavily segregated. What would happen to our communities if God's reign was recognized everywhere, what kind of scandals would we avoid in our country? What would, be the, what would be the single most important thing in each of our lives if God's reign was completely and fully recognized by everyone? But here's the deal. God's kingdom is not yet realized. And since we live as those who are striving to be a part of that kingdom, we have our feet in two worlds. On the one hand, we've got our feet in the rebellious world. And then we have our feet in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's talking about sometimes a, a vision for the future. The, the kingdom of God is, is what you work toward in life. It's what we're striving toward. It's what we want life to look like in this world. Uh, Karl Marx talked about religion as the opiate of the people. He, he said that Christians focus people's attention on heaven or pie in the sky. In, in his mind, those people were of no use because focusing on heaven meant that they didn't worry uh, very much about their earthly condition. And I would say this, to the degree that Christians have sometimes done that, they have failed Jesus and his kingdom. I mean, that's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks in that last series we did in Free, that, that, that one day we're all going to die, right? And we're all going to be in heaven, and that's going to be a great day, but, but we've got to live in the here and now. And we can be free from all of those things that, that trap us in the here and now, and, and not just in heaven. And, and that's the same thing with God's kingdom. We, we're living for God's kingdom in the future, but we are living in the here and now. So we have to focus on, on what we can do to make God's kingdom a, a fully recognized and realization for people today. He wants us to work towards seeing the kingdom realized in the future. The kingdom of God is a vision for our lives. It's, it's what you're supposed to be about. You get up in the morning and you say, God, how can you use me today? What can I do to be on mission for you today as I live to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? God, how can you help me lead people to love and follow Jesus today? The kingdom of God is both a present reality all around us and a vision that we work toward for the lives of our future. Finally, the kingdom of God is the ultimate climax of human history. Sometimes when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, he's speaking about a present reality somewhere else. 
A, a place where God's reign is completely experienced without any rebellion toward God. Scripture says that, that the day will come when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, where, where Jesus is making all things new, right? Where the kingdom of God will transplant the kingdoms here on this earth. The, the book of Revelation, it says that there is a day where there will be no more sorrow and no more grief and no more death and no more pain. And, and that God himself will be the light in the midst of that kingdom. Man, that excites me. I'm excited for that day. And I hope that you are too. I hope that that's what we're all looking forward to, right? A day where there's no more disease. Where there's no more sin. There's no more, there's no more things that trap us in this earthly body that, that, that afflict us. Man, I'm excited about that day. That's the hope that we have as Christians, that one day we'll be in that place. That's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Revelation 25, 21-5, where it says, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm excited about that day. And here's the hope for us. The good news for us is that we know that the, that place currently exists for those who have gone on to be with the Lord, those who have, who have been Christians, who have died, who have loved God. At the end of their life, they have this opportunity to join the heavenly kingdom where God's will is perfectly done. These, these are the three senses of the kingdom of God. The first is the sense that, that the kingdom is all around us, that there's nowhere that God doesn't reign. Whether you recognize it or not, God reigns over everything. So live in God's kingdom, right? Walk in His kingdom. Walk according to His precepts. The, the second sense is the kingdom is for the kingdom of God is that it's a vision for, for what the future could look like. If our planet was not in rebellion, if we decided to not live in open rebellion against the king, this is what it could look like. As Christians, we've got to work toward that vision. We've got to seek to make it a reality here and now. And then the final sense is that the kingdom of God is our ultimate destination. It, it's our ultimate hope and, and, and the place that we will be one day. Where, where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, none of all of those evils. I'll, I'll end this message the same way that Jesus ended his message when he preached about the kingdom of God and it being near. He said there were two responses to make, that, to, that we should make. And the first response is this, to repent. And I know that repentance, that, to repent, that's a kind of a churchy word. You don't hear it used in, in really any circles outside of church. But, it, but it's simple. It just means to think differently afterwards. Right? Just to think differently af afterwards. Now that you know for a fact that the kingdom of God, that you can be a part of that, you begin to think differently. You see the world differently. You, you have a different perspective. You change how you think. And when you change how you think, you will change your behavior. Let me just tell you right now, we focus way too much on changing behavior first. People won't come into the church because they think they, that, that they're going to be judged by their behavior right away. And guess what? They are. I mean, let's just be honest about it. They are. And we focus way too much on behavior. We say we got to change their behavior. And I'm telling you, if we only ever change their behavior, guess what they will do? They will revert right back to the same behavior. But God is not in the business of changing behavior. God's in the business of changing hearts. And when hearts are changed, guess what naturally follows? Behavior change. Look, if you're a new convert to Christianity... I don't expect that you're going to live like you've been a Christian for 50 years and you're, and you're just walking in righteousness every day, all day. Like I, I, I'm just be honest with you, I don't expect that from you. You know why? Because you haven't had time to. Your, your heart is still changing. And so there are going to be days when you struggle with sin and struggle with temptation that you think you shouldn't, shouldn't struggle with. But let me tell you, so, and, and, and I don't mean this to sound harsh or critical, but, but it is what it is. Some of you have been Christians for a really long time. 
And your behavior is still the same way that it was when you became a Christian. And that has to change. You know what that's a symptom of? That's a symptom of a heart that's not been fully given to God. If your behavior is still the same as it was the day you were a Christian, that's a symptom of a heart that's not been fully devoted to God. And we gotta, we got to work on heart change. God is in the business of heart change because when your heart changes, behavior changes. And so Jesus says, when the kingdom of God has come near, it's near now, repent. Repent. Think differently. Think differently, and guess what? You will eventually behave differently. And then Jesus says that we should believe the good news. Now, many of us grew up in church backgrounds where the good news wasn't really good news, but it was bad news. Every week you felt guiltier after church than you felt when you, when you went to church, right? Yeah, God was someone to be terrified of in life. You, you feared God, and, and, and not like feared God in the, in, the, in the sense that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. No, 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 like feared you, were, you trembled, you were terrified. You, it was this big guy in the sky that's just waiting to strike you with lightning. Like That's the image of God that many people got when they were kids because that's just, that's just how God was explained to them. And so it didn't seem like good news, did it? But I'm always afraid that like, if I mess up, God's going to strike me with lightning. That's not good news. But Jesus says twice in this passage, believe the good news of God. Believe the good news of God. Believe that good news is good news, right? It's good news that God reigns and that God, God reigns all around us. It's good news that you have direction for your life, that, that the kingdom of God is a vision for the future so you know what you should be striving for, that we know what direction we should be going. And I'm telling you, church, that's, that's exactly the vision that we should be striving for as well. We should be moving toward the kingdom of God for, for the present reality. And it's good news that you have a hope that when this life is over, that it's not the end. I'm telling you, if this is all there is, if this is all there is, then we're wasting our time here. If, if the present reality is all that we have to look forward to, if tomorrow's going to be just like today, and the next day's going to be just like the day after, then I'm telling you, we are wasting our time. But we're not wasting our time. Because we have a hope that, there's an e- that, that when this life is over, eternity begins. And when eternity begins, we're welcomed into a place not made by human hands, but by God himself. And I look forward to that day where I get to the pearly gates. or I don't know what they're going to look like. But, but when I get there, and I'm welcomed by all the saints who have gone on before. And I hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. The kingdom of God is our hope for eternity. And our task now is simply to believe it so. Simply to believe and act accordingly. Because remember, God is in the business of changing hearts. And I want my heart to be a reflection of His heart. And I want your heart to be a reflection of His heart. So that, so that those who aren't a part of the kingdom now will see, see something that's different than a world that lives in rebellion against the kingdom. I mean, ultimately, that's what we want, right? I mean, nobody ever says, hey, I'm, I'm just satisfied with the church being the way it is, right? Nobody ever says that. Sometimes we act that way, but nobody ever says that. But if we really mean that, then that means our hearts have to be a reflection of God's heart. And when people see our hearts as a reflection of God's heart, their hearts will begin to change. People long and, and desire something different than this world. I mean, if you, you don't believe me, just look at, at, at all the things that people go after 
that are going to fill a void, right? They're, they're, they're seeking things to fill a void. That, that's why drug addiction is so rampant in our country, just addiction in general, because they're seeking a void. They're seeking to fill a void that can only be filled by God. And the only way they're ever going to experience God and His kingdom is if we reflect God and His kingdom in our lives. That's our mission, right? To lead people to love and follow Jesus. Not so that people will say, look how great they are, but so that the kingdom of God is known and grows. Amen? Let me pray for us.